in a minute. Uh, right, I'm going to send you live. OK. Okay, well, very warm welcome to everyone to the first Modern South Asian Studies Seminar of the new academic year at Oxford. My name is Danica Mathur, and I'm Associate Professor in the Anthropology of South Asia here at Oxford. I'm going to be in conversation with my colleague, Professor Polly O'Hanlon, who is Professor in Indian History and Culture at Oxford. Um, as you all know, the topic of the session is Global Histories of Hierarchy, Reflections from India on Caste, Race and the Black Lives Matter Movement. I'm going to just say a very sort of short introduction, um, just a few words on the thinking behind the seminar theme. So it's been an extraordinary year for the world and we're beginning this new session and welcoming new students and colleagues under rather difficult circumstances, uh, you know, to take recourse to an English understatement. Um, the pandemic and the differentiated suffering it has caused along lines of race, caste, gender and class is an important reminder of the salience of these identities and how lethal they quite literally can be. At the same time, the death of George Floyd and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement globally has opened a new certain political and intellectual questions. We as scholars of India trained in the social sciences and humanities propose considering them through a situation of the literature, this long standing literature on inequality, on caste, on hierarchy, on violence from, from this region. Now, an immediate provocation for this conversation and what we'll sort of take as a jumping off point is, of course, the publication of the book Cast by Pulitzer Prize winning author Isabel Wilkerson. It is, of course, Black History Month here in the UK, and we see this conversation today as part of, of our attempt to mark its significance. In the spirit of this discussion that hopes to situate the correspondences between race and caste via a perspective from India, it is incumbent upon me to also mention what happened in Hathras in the North Indian state of Uttar Pradesh recently. I know most of you are well aware of this incident, but it bears recounting here at the very outset all the same. A young Dalit woman, Manisha Valmiki, was brutally raped and murdered by a group of upper caste Thakur men in her village. Before dying, she testified to the gang rape, yet another testimony of the intersection of caste and gender, as well as the prevalence of caste atrocities in contemporary India. Again, as is well known by now, Manisha's family was not given her corpse to cremate, but rather the police forcibly burned her body against her family's explicit wishes under the cover of darkness. Disturbingly, there have been several attempts by the government in power to downplay, refute and cover up the rape and murder, attesting to the prevalence of institutionalized casteism in the very apparatus of the state. Now, this horrific incident has led to a spate of protests in India and beyond with the slogan of Dalit Lives Matter. If this conversation between all of us assembled here is one of considering correspondences between race and caste as entrenched structures of inequality, violence and oppression, then what is being described as the Hathras horror brings this home at the starkest way possible. At the same time, the mimicking of the language and visuals of political mobilization around Black Lives Matter and Dalit Lives Matter opens out larger questions for the academy such as how do our long-standing research interests respond to these particular moments in time? What can this rich literature on caste and inequality from India contribute to our thinking of race and inequality more globally? What forms of solidarities, political, institutional, social, does this push us to strive for? And how might our teaching, our thinking, writing, citational practices, disciplinary orientations, and public engagement be transformed through an engagement with and by a centering of Black Lives Matter as well as Dalit Lives Matter. Now, before I hand over to Professor O'Hanlon, who's going to get us started on thinking historically about the relation between race and caste, and who's also going to offer a reading of Wilkerson's book, just a few housekeeping announcements. So first of all, I'd like to thank our colleague Imre Banga, who's Associate Professor of Hindi at Oxford, as well as the course director of the Modern South Asian Studies degrees for taking a lead on organizing all the seminars for this entire year. Um, We're also extremely grateful to Claire Salter from the Asian Studies Center at St. Anthony's College and Stephen Maine from the Oxford School of Global and Area Studies, who've been sort of heroically managing the logistics and the technology behind the series. 
Just on the question of technology, uh, as you can see, we are recording this conversation. We envisage this very much as a dialogic event. Um, you know, we're so delighted that all of you are able to join us in this first session. We're of course constrained by technology and by time, but we do hope to make this as much of a conversation as is possible. As you can see, there is a Q&A uh, box on the side, which is open for comments, questions, queries, thoughts, anything you basically wish. Um, Polly and I will briefly offer out some tentative ideas, and then we look forward to getting your thoughts in the latter half of the session. Due to constraints of time, we might not be able to read out or respond to everyone, but we'll try our absolute best, so please bear with us. Uh, okay, so just over to Polly now. Polly, I think you're still muted. <laughs> Thank you very much, Nayanika, um, and it's a, a great pleasure to be able to have um, have this much broader conversation than we're, we're able to do at the start of the academic year. Um, Zoom Teams has become so much a part of our lives. So as Nayanika um, indicated, one of the occasions for this conversation is Isabel Wilkerson's important new book, Cast the origins of our discontents, published in uh, the USA um, in August. Let me offer here um, a brief outline. Um, it's a book principally about race and racial antagonisms in the USA, in which Wilkerson suggests that entrenched racial divides in the USA, which are currently such a pressing issue across the world, are in fact better understood as a form of caste. Wilkerson takes her definition of caste principally from the Indian experience as a form of social hierarchy represented as emanating from divine will, understood to be inherited from one generation to the next, which enforces heredity in occupations, restriction of marriage relations within the caste community, norms around notions of purity and pollution, dehumanization and stigma attached to castes at the bottom of the hierarchy, um, the enforcement of caste discipline through fear and violence, and an intellectual superiority ascribed to those, we might would call them Brahmins, at the apex of the system. Wilkerson argues that caste in this form is actually a universal feature of social organisation, present over millennia in India, emerging again in the slave societies of the USA and their later inheritance in modern day racial divides, visible also in European fascism and the Holocaust uh, that it brought about uh, in the middle of the 20th century. Now, Wilkerson doesn't suggest that there's always a kind of tra direct transmission of ideas and institutions between these manifestations. She does say that there are sometimes connections as in the officials dispatched from Germany to the USA in the 1930s to look for racially based models of social segregation that might be applied to, to Jews and other stigmatized communities in Germany. Rather, Wilkerson suggests that the tendency to think and act in ways that privilege some and stigmatize others is actually innate, what she calls quote, the human pyramid encrypted into us all. Race has been one important modern and particularly entrenched manifestation of this tendency, but it's only a manifestation of a deeper and innate human drive. In describing this very appropriately, Wilkerson takes up the analogy of the human body itself. Race is malleable and changing, one type of skin, as it were, that lies over what she depicts as the hard skeleton of caste beneath, caste as the enduring propensity of humans to create and enforce structures of esteem and stigma wherever they find themselves. So there's much to think about here, not just for scholars of race in the USA, but for students of South Asian societies, where a key social institution such as caste is thus generalised as the underlying paradigm 
for all human inequality. There is an obvious question for anthropologists in the elements of structural func um, functionalism that Wilkinson has clearly taken on from the social anthropologists of the 1940s and 50s, who also saw caste, forms of caste, in the segregation of the American South. But in deploying this argument in the changed circumstances of our own times, where the Black Lives Matter across the world, the, the movement across the world has pushed questions of race, race so powerfully to the forefront of the political conversation, the argument also offers a compelling new perspective. As Wilkerson suggests, it offers us a fresh way of seeing race at a time when the terms race and racism have lost almost all of their real analytical value. Rather, as she points out, they've become morally charged terms of reprimand and shame, allowing those who disown the principles of racism but perpetuate its practices to avoid challenge and confrontation. It's useful, I think, certainly was very useful for me, to remind ourselves of the long history of conversation and parallel analyses between African-American scholars and activists and their counterparts in India and other parts of South Asia campaigning for low caste and Dalit communities. Taking me back to my long ago PhD research, Maharashtra's Jyoti Rafule, writing shortly after the American Civil War, called his research into low caste and Dalit conditions, Gulamgiri, slavery. And he dedicated it to what he called the good people of the US for their struggles against slavery. There's the less direct conversation, but certainly parallel concerns. Again, this is very familiar ground between Dr. Ambedkar and his contemporary, the US civil rights activist, Professor W.E.B. Dubois. Ambedkar used some of his time in Colombia between 1913 and 16, taking courses in social anthropology, where he was particularly influenced by Franz Boas, who rejected contemporary understandings of race as innate difference and instead emphasized race as a cultural and social construct. From this, Ambedkar developed his understanding of untouchability, not as a form of race, but rather as social and cultural difference but difference presenting a much greater resistance to change than slavery, because laws could emancipate the slave, he argued, whereas untouchability was a consequence of religious obligation and so much more difficult to remove. For Dubois, on the other hand, the analytic of caste, a com combination of social and bodily ranking, played a central role in his understanding of social and political life in the Jim Crow era of reconstruction, which he described as a racialized form of caste. It became very common to invoke the idea of caste in the context of the American South. The anthropologist Alison Davis in 1941 used it. Uh, Gunnar in uh, used it in 1944, talking of the race-based caste system of post-reconstruction USA. Other connections and conversations are so well known, it's, uh, um, I'll mention them only briefly. The Dalit welcome extended to Martin Luther King during his brief visit to India in 1959. The US Black Panther movement of the 1980s, which provided much inspiration for India's Dalit Panther movement of the early 1970s and after. And of course, there have been a whole host of much more recent and rich conversations, which I can't begin to do justice to here with the growth of Dalit studies in US universities and the many small institutional initiatives aimed at bringing Dalit scholars to the US. So Wilkerson is really the latest in a long line of scholars and activists who have found the perspective of caste a refreshing new analytic in other contexts. There are criticisms, of course, as you would expect. Wilkerson's book gives a graphic and harrowing account of slavery and its long aftermath in the USA. 
Its account of Dudit lives, though, is much more abbreviated. And there is the question itself of the essentialization of caste in her wider argument. Nonetheless, there's undoubtedly enormous value in the opening up of these intellectual and political connections, or rather renewing them, with the opportunities that they bring in these times of acute pressure for communities marginalized by race, caste and class. One thing I think the book does draw attention to is the comparing the compelling parallels between caste and race um, as different um, but congruent forms of hierarchy. In the US setting following Wilkerson, the attempt is to subsume race into caste, only when we think of racial stigma and marginality as a form of caste, can we really comprehend its entrenched and all pervasive culture. But in South Asia and amongst Dalits active in international arenas, it has sometimes seemed more strategic to argue that caste and casteism should actually be recognized as a form of racism. During the 2001 World Conference Against Racism in Durban, held under the auspices of the UN, Dalit representatives campaigned very hard to get caste recognized as a manifestation of racism. They failed in the face of objections from the government of India, who insisted that the roots of racism actually lie outside India in the biopolitics of the West with its inheritances of slavery and colonialism. In the UK more recently, Dalit activists fought long and hard to get caste recognized as a category of discrimination like race under the UK's Equalities Act of, 19, of 2010. But again, they failed as opponents described the move as anti-Hindu. The Dalit Lives Matter movement again seeks, implicitly at least, to connect caste to race and to demand that the international attention given to the Black Lives Matter movement should have its equivalent for Dalits across South Asia, whose circumstances are equally, if not sometimes even more, challenging. At the same time, one can't help but wonder how far this, as it were, internationalization of caste is actually helpful for the cause of Dalit and other marginal communities across the states and societies of South Asia. On the one hand, it might have been a strategic gain to have it recognized that caste incorporates elements of discriminatory social practice that might be categorized elsewhere as modes of racism. On the other hand, to have caste so generalized as to be the default form of all human discrimination might be viewed from a conservative perspective as a very welcome move. It alleviates the sense that caste might be a South Asian problem in particular. Indirectly, it also reinforces the argument that is now often made that caste identities these days belong primarily to the sphere of the private, of culture. If there is a bad type of caste that belongs to every part of the world as hierarchy and stigmatization, perhaps there can also be within South Asia caste as a very different thing, the harmless caste of private identity and family social practice. So perhaps in the end, Wilkerson's book does do us an additional service when it places caste and race in such direct conversation. It makes us ask again what caste really is, not only as social practice, which pervades the public as well as the private sphere, but what caste is as a term in public discourse. Casteism, like racism, is a morally charged term of reproach. But the simple term caste can be just an everyday descriptor, or for those who prefer to avoid it, the meaning that lies behind the more anodyne term community. In these senses, it seems perhaps to an outsider like myself here in Oxford, very much shielded from the difficult challenges that I've alluded to here, that the perspectives opened up here offer huge opportunities, the 
chance to expand vital conversations. But I also wonder and seek to learn from the reflections of colleagues who are actually closer, much closer to these harsh choices. Even as it seems to offer new possibilities of alliance, does this internationalization of caste not also suggest new ways in which it may seem once again presented to us as rooted in nature, but this time through the idiom of global scholarship. Um, so that's some very general and, and naive thoughts uh, from me. And let me hand over now to Nainika, who will pick up, I think, um, uh, uh, some of these themes. Nainika. Thank you, Polly, for this totally brilliant and very elegant reading um, of Wilkerson's book. Uh, I'll just remind everyone who's here that there's the Q&A box here on the site. So if you have any questions from or any comments or thoughts on what Polly has just said or, you know, or on this topic in general, please start adding them now. Um, what I'm going to do really quickly is so one of the things that we envisaged this as was a conversation between a historian and an anthropologist to think about the different ways in which disciplines have um, have looked at the relationship between race and caste in India. Uh, Polly has of course done this incredibly elegant and beautiful reading of it, which isn't just rooted in history. It's uh, you know it's sort of a multidisciplinary reading of it. What I'm going to do um, before we sort of loop back to some of the very important points uh, that Polly just made. I just want to run us through very quickly the sort of the history or sort of the ways in which the sociology and the anthropology of India have looked at this relationship between race and caste before we come on to Wilkerson's book. Um, and, you know, while I was sort of reading this and thinking a bit more about this, I was really fascinated by uh, the changes in the ways in which anthropology and sociology have studied caste, but particularly in relation to race. Now, what you can see when you look at this question of caste and race from India um, is that actually in the 1940s, it was the American sociologists like Alison Davis and the Gardners, uh, as Polly mentioned, as well as people like John Dollard and Hortense Powdermaker, uh, who were looking, doing these deep ethnographic studies of what they called caste in the segregated South in the 1930s um, in America. Now, the way in which they used caste at the time was very much in conjunction with class, but was also, as Chris Fuller has argued, uh, it was also used in a way to stay away from the more explosive term race. Um, but again, what Fuller has argued and what Bete have, uh, Andre Bete, the Indian sociologist, have also argued is that actually what, there was this moment in the 30s and 40s where caste became quite central to the ways in which American sociologists and anthropologists were studying, uh, well, what we would call race, or they were studying segregation or inequality and hierarchy in the United States. But somehow by the end of the 40s, it never sort of, it didn't catch on to the conceptual apparatus uh, within the disciplines of anthropology and sociology and the whole utility of the term caste to understand hierarchy or discrimination or race in the US sort of faded out after the 1940s. In India, on the other hand, um, there was probably one of the earliest mentions amongst anthropologists of the relationship between caste and race was in 1908 by Risley, who argued that the caste system originated from the encounter of races, a really problematic and you know uh, evolutionary perspective on it, uh, which was sort of discarded, though the Indian sociologist Gurye did return to it uh, in many ways in his work in the 60s and 70s. But sort of the really interesting point in Indian sociology and anthropology, when the discussion of race becomes quite, um, you know, takes on sort of more meat, so to say, was in 1960 when Gerald Berriman and Louis Dumont independently published articles expressing very different opinions on the relationship between caste and race. So for Berriman, who it's worth noting, was drawing from his experience of living in Alabama, as well as of doing fieldwork in Dehradun in northern India, the two, what he called the two caste systems of the United States and India are truly similar. And for him, the similarity between what he described as the caste systems of the US and India, what we think of as race and caste, was that the both of them, uh, the fundamental feature of both is, quote, institutionalized inequality. 
Now, at about the same time, Dumont, Louis Dumont, who's the great French um, sociologist who wrote this, uh, you know, this big book called Homo Hierarchicus, which has very forcefully shaped the field of Indian sociology and anthropology, particularly when it comes to the study of caste, um, sort of completely rejected this. And he wrote this uh, piece in an appendix to the book Homo Hierarchicus, um, where he said that actually this is a gross misunderstanding to say that what we call caste in India is the same as what we call race in America is profoundly wrong. Um, and the reason that he sort of thought this was wrong is, as Andre Bete has noted, is because for Dumont, caste was normal in India. And again, th these are his terms. Caste was considered a sort of intrinsic feature of India and it was normal, whereas according to Dumont, race is what he considered pathological in America. Um, Anyway, so both Chris Fuller and Andre Bete have separately noted that the overwhelming effect of the influence of Dumo's book Homo Hierarchicus was that it led to an abandonment of this comparison between caste and race in India, within Indian sociology and anthropology. Now, it's sort of interesting to see that, um, you know, again, this is a slight tangent to this conversation, but I think at some levels it does uh, fit into it. Um, and the point here is that actually it was a very forceful account by a leading sociologist at one point who rejects this relationship between race and caste that led to uh, to its sort of abandonment, so to say, within the ethnography um, of Indian sociology. And this is despite the fact that Homo Hierarchicus and Dumont have been, you know, criticized extensively, ad nauseum, one would say. Uh, but it sort of still sticks on that this is not something, this kind of comparison is not necessarily relevant. This is, of course, changing in the contemporary moment, and I'm going to come to that in a bit. But before I do that, um, I should say that, you know, the next time you sort of see this race caste comparison popping up is in 1990, where Andre Bete begins his essay on race, caste and gender by saying, and now I'm quoting him, any attempt today to bring together race and caste for comparison and contrast is likely to meet with a cold reception. End of quote. Now, he himself went on to argue that the inequalities of caste are illuminated in the same way as those of race through a consideration of gender. Um, and by that, he basically looked at two things. He looked at what he called the sexual use and abuse of women. And secondly, this unremitting concern with the purity of women at the top of the caste or the race hierarchy. Um, this wasn't really an argument he developed fully at the time. And somehow sort of again, um, it sort of petered out here. Now, I think something that I want to sort of offer here um, in in light of the discussions that have been opened up by Wilkerson's book, but also actually uh, given sort of the stark similarities um, between Black Lives Matter and Dalit Lives Matter, as well as some of the new sociology and anthropology of India that's coming up right now. Um, I, I think this also is actually a moment for us to think about the politics of knowledge production. Um, and in what ways is it that certain categories are not considered productive and others are? What are the ways in which we decide as sociologists, anthropologists to pursue the study of caste? Now, it's we sort of know that much of the sociology and anthropology of India has been written either by upper caste scholars or by white academics who tended to not see caste in their writings or what is much more commonplace is that they have located it within certain marked out domains only where somehow caste becomes visible. Um, this this idea of caste becoming invisible uh, is something that's been that's being sort of or the domains in which it is invisible is something that is being radically challenged and disrupted by Dalit writers and some very important recent ethnographies, of course. But the point is that and I'm going to discuss those ethnographies in a minute. But I think the point I want to make here is that we cannot underplay the hegemony of the scholarship, of the sort of long sort of weight of scholarship that has written out caste from certain spaces or certain domains. Now, I'm taking my lead on this argument from David Moss's recent article in Modernation Studies on the modernity of caste, uh, where he makes a very, very compelling argument about how the study of caste has been corralled, so to say, into certain spheres. Uh, I'm actually just going to quote him here. So he says uh, this article, quote, argues that the scholarly framing of caste mirrors a public policy enclosure of caste in the non-modern realm of religion and caste politics while aligning modernity to caste erasing market economy. The caste processes, enclosures and evasions and post-liberalization India suggest the need to rethink the modernity of caste beyond Orientalist and post-colonial frameworks. End of quote. Now, I think what he's sort of 
what Moss does very powerfully in this work is that he shows how caste is very much central to post-liberalization India, how it's very much part of the market, how caste functions, functions as a form of resource, uh, how caste is able to exclude people, how it materially disadvantages Dalits, for instance. Um, and I think what he also does really powerfully in this work and which is also coming out from some of the new sort of some of this fantastic new literature, which is engaging directly with caste and race, is really this idea of how uh, there has been a long sort of history of sociology and anthropology where you start to uh, notice and see caste only in certain domains and not in others, right? Such as the domain of politics, such as the domain of, exactly as Polly said, in the private sphere or within something like marriage rather than in spaces like the market economy where you somehow think um, the forces of modernity have overtaken it. Now, I'm going to quickly, what I'm going to do in for the next sort of four or five minutes uh, is I'm going to just think about, I'm going to just name some of the the people who are working on this as well as point out some of the trends I can see emerging in the sociology and anthropology of India, which I personally find very intriguing. Um, and I think that have a very fascinating take on the race-caste relation that might nuance some of the questions uh, emerging from Wilkerson's book. Now, of course, uh, very prominent amongst this is on the question of race and caste is the writing of Suraj Yengde, who uh, has written this book, uh, which became an instant bestseller called Caste Matters. He's also co-edited with Anand Teltumbe, a book on um, Ambedkar. Uh, Suraj Yangde uh, wrote a cover story for Caravan magazine just earlier this year in July, which was entitled Race, Caste and What Will It Take to Make Dalit Lives Matter? Uh, he is working quite extensively on what he's termed the Dalit black question. Um, similarly, uh, we have Ajanta Subramaniam's uh, recent book, The Cast of Merit, which has shown how the language of merit in engineering schools in India, she's talking about her ethnography in IIT Madras and the Indian Institute of Technology in Madras, how uh, this sort of this language of merit invisibilizes caste privilege in India. And she also notes how this is very similar to the United States, where you know those Americans who are least disadvantaged by racism are most likely to endorse the country as post-racial. Uh, and this is very similar to those Indians who have benefited enormous, enormously from the upper caste affiliation um, and who refuse to see caste or declare themselves caste-less in some way. Um, of course, there's a, some really fantastic work on castelessness that's uh, coming out by sociologists in India, such as Satish Deshpande, who've talked about how castelessness becomes something that is, um, you know, very sort of that operates in particular ways in different domains within India. Um, and this, in that sense, also has a, I, I haven't myself seen this relationship between uh, the post-racial society or uh, you know, not seeing grace being made here, but it has a lot of echoes with precisely those arguments. Um, we also have geographers, urban geographers, historical geographers who started working on racialization in India. So there was an antipode workshop last year on rethinking difference in India that studied the links as it described between myriad forms of social difference, um, so which included caste, tribe, ethnicity, faith, and broader understandings of race, racism, and racialization. So I'm not going to make this into a laundry list of people who are studying the race caste relation, but I just wanted to flag that as something that uh, is is emerging from this work in India, which is really promising and exciting. And again, I want to end by not offering an exhaustive list of where perhaps we can see this discussion on race caste going forward, but I'm going to just offer out some thoughts on how we can perhaps discuss it further in our conversation uh, right now. Um, so one of the ways in which I think race and caste um, and, and can be really productively studied together intellectually is actually in the context of the climate crisis and the ecological, ecological collapse that you know we're all sort of staring in the face. So one of the most uh, exciting ways in which we can see the ecological collapse being um, theorized and studied is through its link to racial capitalism. And the question is, are we, can we see similar developments of work on the climate crisis in South Asia, which makes these links between empire, caste and capitalism more clearly? So there is uh, somebody who is working in this in this field is um, Malni Ranganathan, uh, who's also based in the US, who's worked on environmental justice in America, as well as the relationship between colonial history and contemporary struggles around caste identity and environmental outcomes in urban India. 
another sort of field where you can see this relationship between caste and race really coming out uh, quite strongly ethnographically is in uh, work on the Indian diaspora. So of Indians who've sort of settled outside India, but somehow caste, you don't sort of lose it when you you know move out of the shores, when you go beyond uh, the nation state, so to say. Um, there have been very striking cases of casteism, such as, uh, for instance, in companies in Silicon Valley. Um, we can, Polly has already mentioned the intense lobbying that went on in the UK to prevent caste discrimination from being listed in the UK qualities legislation. But again, you can constantly see caste coming up in the UK when it comes to um, legislations and NGOs and work on forced marriages and honor killings um, in the UK and the caste basis of this. There are um, another sort of strand which probably needs to be developed a bit more, but we can again see some really interesting ethnographic work coming out um, is on looking at institutions of the state. So there is a very robust literature on what we call structural racism or institutional racism which has been written by black feminist writers, which has been written by black authors. Um, and what we can see emerging out of India is this sort of awareness in the anthropological and sociological literature on things like institutional casteism and structural casteism and how they're built into, for instance, the police or, upper, or the upper echelons of the bureaucracy. Um, but again, these are things that we are still sort of um, working through. Uh, though there is, uh, there are some a few really good ethnographies that look at the caste dimension of the state itself. One of the ways in which I have personally found uh, my own understanding of especially Dalit scholarship most powerfully enhanced is by reading the memoirs of Dalit scholars, uh, especially of women Dalit scholars. So I'm thinking here of Yashika Dutt's very powerful book coming out as uh, Dalit, as well as uh, Sujata Gidlers and Samang Elephants, uh, again, incredibly powerful. Uh, Yashika Dutt also has an excellent review of Isabel Wilkerson's book in Foreign Policy, um, where she really makes the point that in some ways it's quite similar to what was on what was running through Polly's um, argument. Um, but that really says that what Wilkerson is doing is that she's really serving a uniquely American argument. And what is very powerful about Wilkerson's book is that uh, the Indian state has been doing all these diplomatic maneuvers to keep caste and the notoriousness of caste and caste atrocities out of a global eye. But what Wilkerson is able to do is she sort of reveals it. But at the same time, due to this problem with the centralization of caste and not looking at contemporary Dalit struggles in India, um, she sort of unfortunately um, invisibilizes uh, sort of the, the kind of marginalization in contemporary India of caste. And again, uh, completely, uh, I'm sure without intention, but she somehow plays into those arguments of uh, which are very rampant in India that caste is this archaic institution that will somehow wither away on its own. Um, and finally, I sort of have to end with this because again, this is uh, sort of my personal research interest. The places where I can see caste, uh, literature on caste coming out really powerfully is within multi-species ethnography when it comes to looking at the non-human. This is particularly true when you look at the politics around beef, um, around food politics, around bovine politics, uh, where some of the new sort of multi-species ethnographic work really brings out the, the salience and the power and the violence of caste in very, very profound ways. So I'm going to sort of end here. And these are, as I said, these are just some preliminary thoughts. Uh, we'd love to sort of get questions from the rest of you. I can see that there are quite a few out there already. Um, I should have said, uh, by the way, that you have the option when you put up your questions to either make them anonymous or to put your name to it. If uh, I see your name, I'm going to just read that out. So I hope that's okay. Uh, I can see the quite a few anonymous questions up there. So I think we'll start taking them at this point. Um, Polly, do you have any that you would like to take first? Well, I wonder if we might start with the, the this direct question that we have at the top from Komal. Yeah. Why moments like Hathras haven't haven't attracted the, the, the global condemnation that the killing of George Floyd did in the United States? I mean, mm -hmm. in, in some senses, within that simple question, are posed, as it were, the question that the questions that you and I have have found ourselves trying to ask mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, of course it 
in some ways it it points to differences um, in the forms of solidarity amongst um, uh, African-American communities um, in the United States and the more limited forms of solidarity amongst the, the smaller and weaker Dalit communities in India. Um, I mean, one can think of a whole host of answers and one what one hopes is that conversations that Wilkerson's book, the kind Wil Wilkerson's book have enabled will will help to um, uh, will help amongst Dalit movements to develop and emulate and um, learn from um, campaigns in the United States to, to, to draw that kind of attention. Um, uh, uh, just listening to you, um, Nanika, I just wanted to throw in one sort of final idea about, mm -hmm. you know, about why it is that um, that for some people, caste and race seem important parallels and for others, they seem to have very little to do with one another. And obviously, part of the answer to that is political. But I wonder whether, having read Wilkerson's book, whether in fact it might help us um, to see much more in common than we normally do between the forms of marginalization and stigmatization that are there in race and caste, in mm -hmm. both of which these forms are based very much in social practice and in, in understandings of the body. Mm -hmm. Those things on one hand, but the differences on the other hand, between the utility and the solidarities that we see in caste and that we see in race. I, mm -hmm. I think those, the, the utility of race and its solidarities and the utility of caste for those who, for whom caste communities are a, a critical safety net, are a, a sphere of sociability, are uh, an opportunity for political alliance, an opportunity to press the state, the Indian state for um, uh, 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 access to reservations and other social benefits. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering whether a direction for scholarly research doesn't lie in trying to separate out those two and which would make the para the comparisons easier to explore but the in a way which doesn't um isn't interrupted by people pointing out that but they are all actually race and caste are so very different in these other ways mm. anyway could, um, uh, yeah, no, that's a great comment, Polly, in terms of, uh, I mean, if you're thinking also of sort of the political utility of this, there is a way in which one can sort of get bogged down in certain aspects of the comparison rather than thinking about the ways in which it can be marshaled for more progressive political positions. I completely agree. Um, should we take this question by Part Shield? I think this is an important yes. one where I think he's saying that. So I'll just read it out. In our investigation of caste, can religion really be ignored for being a private cultural sphere? Is religion really a private thing in India? To say that we move on to see caste discrimination in the modern space or market economy, etc., might ignore the critical question of confronting the religious foundations of caste in India. This is, after all, an important difference between race and caste. Caste is sanctified by Hinduism. So if I could just quickly say, Parth, yes, I completely agree. Um, I, I mean, I don't think anyone would say religion is just a private thing in India, especially in you know the India we're seeing right now. I think it's absolutely impossible to say that. Um, I think when I was making the point about seeing caste in the in the market, which is basically taken from David Morse's argument, what he's trying to say over there is that there are certain spaces where caste is not consider which are thought to be doing away with caste or are supposed to be able to challenge caste in certain ways and what he's argued through his ethnographic work as well as through these big quantitative studies is that actually caste is being is very very active within it so the point that was just to say that we see caste in spaces where it isn't normally uh, studied rather than to say that it isn't there in in other spheres, such as the private or the cultural. And you're absolutely right. Uh, the religion absolutely needs to be at the center of this. Polly, did you have any thoughts on Bart's question? Well, I suppose I suppose what I'd want to point to that I thought wasn't uh, covered in, um, wasn't really seriously looked at in Wilkerson's book, because, and that's kind of understandable, is the link between um, caste and religion in the very powerful, um, drive still we still in India towards caste endogamy um, and not just caste endogamy but hypergamy mm -hmm. the idea that 
the idea that women um, should always marry social equals or should marry upwards. Um, and um, uh, uh, as we know, those ideas about hypergamy are, are Hindu ideas in the, in the broad sense of that term, in that um, uh, within, as it were, Hindu social theory, when a man and a woman marry, the woman takes on the man's identity, as Manu put it. And no one would say that Hinduism is simply Manu, but Manu does put it. Um, when a man and a woman marry, the woman merges into the man's identity, just as the river, when the river reaches the ocean, it takes on, um, it merges with the ocean. So um, uh, a marriage that is based on hypergamy um, works for everybody because the woman takes on the identity of the man. Um, um, and so the woman's family, as it were, is, is, is at least um, unchanged in its social status. And it, if a woman marries a man of superior status, um, the woman's whole family is, is lifted up by that connection. If a woman um, marries, as it were, against the grain, pretty long, uh, uh, um, in, in a case of, of, of hypogamy, everybody loses because the woman's family loses status because she has married, as it were, beneath her. Um, the man's family doesn't gain because the woman's identity is dissolved in that of the man. Um, and, um, and these are understandings of the relationship between the masculine and the feminine, which are which are they are there in many religions, but they are certainly there um, in in Hindu social thought. Um, and so it's for that reason, of course, and this is a, a familiar thing for anthropologists to say, uh, for that reason, marriage strategies are such an important part of a family's envisaging of its of its own social strategy moving forward. You know. What kinds of marriage connection can we make? Um, decisions about marriage, certainly um, uh, until very recently and for most people, made as a matter of family strategy rather than as it were as in, uh, simply of, of individual choice. So, so, I mean, it's a very long answer to Partashil's question, but, but um, you know, that, that is one of the links, as it were, between caste and Hindu religion. That one can think of very many others, but I have an interest in gender, and so the the aspect of of endogamy, not just endogamy but hypergamy, seems to be a very important and quite specific element in 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 in, um, in, in, in Hindu social thought and, and, and social practice. Um, Brilliant. Um, should we take Sadia Gardezi's question next, who says, um, do you think the treatment of caste and race in other fields like political science and international relations has been adequate? As an IR scholar, I feel that the disciplines are not speaking to each other and would like to know your thoughts. Um, so uh, if I could, Sadia, I don't know the IR field that well, um, but I think there is a really interesting difference in the way in which different disciplines study caste. So Polly and I do this lecture on caste together in which we look at, say, how history and anthropology, uh, the literature and, you know, has have, have studied caste. And it's very interesting to see the slight differences and in inflections, the ways in which the debates have gone, etc. Uh, my sense is that IR in particular doesn't pay that much attention to caste. And I wonder whether that might have something to do with the arguments that certain people like um, Sajanta Subramaniam have been making about caste or about the idea that certain or the fact that actually institutions of the state have not been studied um, through a sort of a caste or a gender lens as adequately as they might have. So speaking as someone who works on the state in India, I can see that um, it's kind of shocking how little, how thin the literature on caste and the state is actually. And that might have something to do with the thinness of it in the field of IR. Polly, I don't know if you have any ideas on this. Um, I think you said as I'm I'm not an IR specialist at all, so um, I, I think it, you know I think what you've said I would have said and rather better. Um, so let's move on to another question, shall yeah, we? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a question by Apurva Malepati um, who asks on the on the thoughts of Berman's comparison as a whole. 
Um, they say, I don't agree with how he created a completely new definition of caste as a hierarchy of endogamous divisions in which membership is hereditary and permanent. He does point, point out the similarities between the two societies in terms of institutionalized inequality, rigid rules of avoidance between castes, stereotyping punishment for defiant sexual gains and rationalization of caste status. But he disregards the fundamental influence of culture and also colonialism. Uh, the, his article felt superficial to me as he tries to haphazardly fit his research into his own new conceptions. Um, he diverts from the main objective. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, someone who works in around Dehradun and who sort of done ethnography in the Himalaya as well, I also don't agree with Behrman's conception as a whole. Um, I found it, you know, I found it. In fact, I would agree with many of your of your criticisms. I also think your point about the ways in which colonialism or empire is completely written out of ethnography is quite problematic. Um, but I again brought him up in this discussion only because he is the one anthropologist slash sociologist who did pose a counter to Dumont and who got into a bit of a debate with Dumont. Um, I think he and Mid uh, Guna Midal were at a workshop together with Dumont and they got into this argument on the race caste question. Um, and I think he is saying something kind of interesting there, which actually links up to some of the other questions that we're getting here, which is on, you know, what are the ways in which we can think about casteism and racism together? And if we follow what Berman is saying is he would argue that they're actually very similar. Um, Polly, I don't know if you have anything to say on Berman. I, I think what what comes to me from the, the, many of the questions that we're getting Mm. It's kind of implicit in them, mm -hmm. and I'd like to just to draw out um, is what the consequences are for our understanding of caste and indeed for um, caste as a social institution. What the consequence is for the emergence um, of such a strong um, and increasingly effective Dalit identity. Um, w when I studied these things in many years ago, um, uh, it was in the context of Maharashtra's, as it were, non-Brahmin movement. And so um, the, the phrase that Fule, the subject of my PhD, used was Shudra Ati Shudra. Um, mm. uh, uh, but we wouldn't really, um, those sorts of alliances, I, I think, and, and in real political terms, the alliances that, that Fule envisaged between um, uh, farmer castes of, of every social class and um, Atishudras, uh, uh, Dalits, we would we would barely think of those alliances in political terms these days. You know, what we have is, is it's a substantive and in a way autonomous um, uh, Dalit movement, um, which stands apart from and doesn't really, uh, uh, who's whose very existence is an implicit critique of caste as a whole. Um, and so I wonder what the I wonder what the, the longer term implications for caste and for making caste into a term like race, which is, mm. you know, race now we think of as it, it's it's something that doesn't exist. We think of it as racism, which certainly does exist. I, um, uh, I wonder whether the existence um, itself of a Dalit movement, which is a standing reproach to everybody who thinks and acts on the basis of caste, whether in some way that will over time um, make draw caste into, into a closer approximation to the term race, again, which is a so, um, a, a, not something that's inherent, but it is a social construct and can therefore be changed. Mm -hmm. I don't know what, what uh, it's a, a, a rather rambling question, but but it's one that I, I certainly think is very important for us uh, to consider how far these things are likely to develop in that direction, because that would that would change the whole perspective, would change all of these discussions, I think. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really, really important point. Um, I know we're almost out of time. We've got five minutes left, but Polly, can I sort of pose two questions to you, given that this is something you've been working on for a while, and these are taken from the questions that we have here. Uh, one is from Srinidhi 
where she says that we tend to think that caste as religious sanction is rooted in religion, and that's not true of race, but she's wondering if it's more complicated than that. Um, so the question is, you know, what about white evangelical Christian movements that conceptualize race and racism in theological terms? Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, uh, but the other question which sort of which has come up in a couple of them is um, on the space of gender, on the role of gender in this. And I was wondering whether you in particular, given you know your amazing work on this, whether you'd like to talk about the intersection of race, caste and gender. Uh, well, um, sorry, uh, two very big questions. <laughs> Talk about caste, race, and gender, and religion. <laughs> um, uh, uh, for the second question, I, I think, I mean, I'm a historian, so I'm afraid I seek refuge in specificity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one can see, one can see forms of cultural universal, which in, for historians is actually quite a dirty word, right. forms of, almost of cultural universal, in which um, difference of, differences of esteem between communities, between classes, are marked by differential access to women. So, you know, to, to put a very crude, put it very crudely, um, the superior um, community has access to the the women of the supposedly inferior community in ways which are simply not reciprocally possible. Um, so. Uh, I think, you know, class, race and gender uh, have that in common. Um, but I, uh, and no doubt they have all sorts of other things in common, but I think the dynamics of the way that they work, particularly in terms of understandings of male and female identity and what happens at marriage and what sorts of the, the, the different types of prohibition um, uh, that, that mark marriages across race and across class, um, uh, I, I think um, uh, are very different. The question of, you know, whether caste is, caste, caste-like behaviour comes out of, out of religion, well, yes, it does. Um, you know, one can see, uh, I, I'm sure it's no accident and my colleagues amongst the American historical com com community, I hope will forgive me, but I can't think it is an accident that um, white evangelical Christianity is one of the biggest supporters um, of the present, the re-election of the present incumbent, um, with all of the perspective, with all of the defensiveness um, of America's, the rights and privileges of America's uh, slowly declining numbers of white voters. Um, but, but that said, I think it would be a mistake to think of caste as something that simply comes out of religion. I think caste is a very complex set of and combined set of forms of valuation, forms of interpretation, forms of belief, but also um, very physical understand associations between um, occupation, between dirt, between forms of dirt, assumptions about dirt, assumptions about impurity that are not just in the mind, but also maybe something that we see on the body. Um, and so I would like to see caste in those terms. And if anything, caste described and understood much more as a set of understandings about the body. Um, of course, you do then come back to religion because, you know, the why is the Dalit a Dalit? If you ask a uh, if you were to ask a Brahmin of, of the last century, he would say it's because of karma. Um, uh, so, so, but I, for my own part, I would like to see a much stronger emphasis on on caste as social practice, on caste as based in uh, uh, based in ideas about about impurity, about aversion. Um, uh, as much as religious um, concepts. Um, so. I think we're sort of out of time. I'm just going to read out a last comment by Tejas because I think it's important to say that Tejas is saying Dalit and OBC alliances still exist. Kashiram had built a great movement around it, but I see an erasure of these aspects by academics, except by scholars like Jaffalo. 
Um, and I think this is sort of an important point to perhaps end on, which is that, you know, there is a whole sort of politics of knowledge production and what it is that we seek to center and what we don't and what alliances we see and, you know, the way we read this history or the politics or the ethnography around it. Um, and, uh, you know, in a way, this conversation today was sort of meant for us also to be in conversation, but to open it out to a much wider conversation around the world to, to think about the intersection of race, caste, gender, class, hierarchy, and um, and to also sort of acknowledge Black History Month and um, sort of, you know, pay our little academic tribute to it, so to say. Um, Polly, did you have any final words before we come to a close? Um, I, I think Tejas is absolutely right. Of course, we shouldn't forget this, you know, just as we see some of the most difficult social tensions between Dalit communities and what we would describe in many contexts as OBCs, we also see fantastic alliances. Yes. I also think um, I'd like also to acknowledge Sayantani's point that we've been talking in casual all India terms. Um, and of yes. course, the local settings of caste in India are so very different. Um, uh, uh, and we have certainly paid insufficient attention to those um, that the uh, uh, regional caste um, structures, of course, um, are very, very much between north and south, between east, the centre and the west, uh, and even within those areas. And so I think we can, we must apologise for our taking the liberty of talking in these all India terms. Um, but uh, I'm sure we, both Nayanika and I, have been very grateful to you for your comments and we've learned much from these conversations. Um, and we hope perhaps in the future to, in these, this era of Zoom opportunity, as much as of Zoom tyranny, um, we hope perhaps to, uh, uh, to be able to do this uh, again. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you all very much for being here and thanks Polly. Thanks Nainika, thank you.